good morning. Uh, welcome to Midtown 12 South. Uh, my name is Elliot. I'm the pastor here. Uh, we have been this summer studying uh, prayer. We did about 12 weeks in uh, the, bouncing back and forth between the Lord's Prayer and other uh, sections of scripture looking at the mystery of prayer. And now today we begin our fall series. If you were here last week, you heard a plug for it. Uh, but we are going to be studying the book of Revelation. Uh, so if you are visiting, now is your time to leave. Uh, if you don't want to be here. Um, but I know this, I know when I say that, uh, we're studying Revelation. Everybody's got, even if it's an unfamiliar one, everyone's got a narrative or an idea or a picture, uh, an experience about Revelation. I know that there's some people in the room who grew up in certain traditions and this book was used to create fear mongering. This, this book was used uh, to make you afraid um, and uh, you don't really want to study Revelation. Uh, and I get that. And then I know there's some in the room who uh, you're like, hey, preacher man, uh, thanks, but no thanks, because I'm glad you want to study Revelation and the future and all that, but uh, I got like real problems. Uh, I got real issues. I got real sin. I got real pain. I got real sadness. I got real doubts. I got real questions. Uh, I don't really need 12 or 15 weeks uh, in the book of Revelation. Like that's not going to help me for my real life. And kind of everything in between, like I've got these bad tapes with what it has meant for me in my faith journey, what I, how I've heard it taught before, or like, could it actually ever even mean anything to me? And it's this nebulous futuristic book that I don't really have any interest in. And I would just hope that over the next semester, uh, if you choose to join us on our journey through Revelation uh, and you're on either ends of those spectrums, you won't be saying that at the end of our series. Um, you, you, will, you will actually, like the original readers of it, uh, be more enthralled with the book, be more enthralled with Jesus uh, and the mystery, and that actually the way, that, that we'll know we've preached a good series if we end the book of Revelation like John himself into the book of Revelation, which was this, come quickly, Jesus. That if our longing and our awakening and our eagerness for the return of Jesus grows between now and Advent, uh, then the book has served its purpose. Uh, and so I hope that it awakens you to a mystery and a beauty uh, and, a, and, a, um, and a Jesus that you don't know everything about yet um, and that you would long for his return. So what is Revelation? Why are we studying it? We got an intro week this week, but I hope that it's not only an intro. I hope we walk out of here with some uh, having met with Jesus. But so much has been written about this book. Uh, I was tasked by our network, Midtown Fellowship Church, which has multiple congregations in the city. I was asked back in the spring to be the one to go away, to take a deep dive on it, to study it, to come back with an outline for how we might preach through it. So I went off to the island of Patmos. I'm kidding. It's a revelation joke. You'll get it. Um, uh, but uh, I went off and for days and days, multiple rounds, some in February, some in March, some in April, went away and, and took a deep dive. And here's, here's what I know. Uh, a lot has been written about this book. My stack of revelation books is huge, way bigger than yours. Uh, and, and here's what I learned. It's so much has been written about it, maybe more than any other New Testament book has been written about Revelation. And yet there seems to be more confusion about Revelation than any other book. And so as we approach this book, here's gonna be 
something that guides our time as we come to this book. One of my favorite Revelation scholars, a guy who's literally given his life to studying this book, said that as we approach this book, two things are and need to remain true about us as we approach this book. And it's these two things. One, I believe everything that John the Apostle believes, the one who wrote this book. I believe everything he believes. And I'm not always sure what John believes. (laughs) That both things are true. I believe everything that John the Apostle wrote and that he saw, I believe everything he believes and I'm not always sure what he believes. And what those two convictions will do for us as we walk through it is it'll keep us humble. It will make us approach this book with a humility that says we may not get to the end of this and understand every image and every vision and every piece. However, what I hope that it does, maybe more importantly is this, I hope that we don't just bring our humility to this book, I hope we bring our imagination to this book. That this book was meant to awaken our imagination. This book was meant to to stir on our redeemed biblical imagination for Jesus and that coming to this book with a humility will actually guide us in helping us see the reality of Jesus that John wants us to see in this book. This book, we'll, we'll look at this a little bit more next week um, on kind of uh, the, the imagery part of this book, the vision part of this book, the apocalyptic part of this book. Um, but please hear me on this. This book is trying to get you to see something differently way before it's getting you to try to believe something differently than you currently believe. It wants to show you something way more than it wants to teach you something. That's why it's a vision. It wants to help you encounter something, help you see something differently, help you behold something. We just sang it. Help you take in something that you don't currently see way before it wants you to get, it wants to get you to believe something differently than you currently believe. And so as we go on this journey of needing to see something differently than we currently see, to see the vision that John saw, you need to know that there is, there's a lot to see. There's a lot to behold. Technically, it's just one vision that John gets, but there's, it's like one movie. There's a lot of scenes. There's a lot to take in. There's a lot to behold. Heard a story this week of another Presbyterian pastor who years ago was on some trip uh, in France and uh, had like the two hour window for like to do the tourist thing in Paris. And they were told when they woke up like the the night before, tomorrow when you wake up, you've got two hours to take in the Louvre, the art museum. And so it's already rushed, like it's a sin to try to see the Louvre in two hours. And so he, you know, trying to maximize every second and he oversleeps the next morning. And now he realizes I'm only gonna have an hour to see the Louvre. So he's running over there and he, and he gets to the Louvre finally and he realizes I left my hotel room this morning and didn't even put on a belt. And so now like his pants are falling off. And so he has to run through the Louvre holding his pants up, okay? The comedy of that is we're gonna feel like that in this series some, Hopefully you have a belt, but like, we're going to, we're going to feel like there's so much to take in and I can't even keep my pants on. Like I can't even, I don't even know. I don't even have a belt. I don't even have, I need you to stop and behold this. I need to stop. And there's so many masterpieces in this, in this vision. There's so many beautiful things to take in so many things to behold. And there's going to be times where we feel like we're rushing past these masterpieces and we don't have time to take it in. And similar to walking through an art museum, all the pictures we see, all the masterpieces we see, one of the ways we're going to try to stop and behold as we walk through this book is actually, it actually informed how I outlined the book and also how we're going to preach through it. So you can throw the uh, sermon series uh, image up there. Um, 
We're calling this series Reframing Reality, a study in Revelation. Because here's what, like like being an art museum, um, we need to see things differently. We need to have things framed for us. And actually our reality needs to be reframed. And we need to know, like looking at that picture, you can see that that painting was actually painted by a Midtowner. Um, And if you kind of look into the portrait, look into the picture, the painting, you kind of get the sense that, wait, there's a whole other world through this frame. And if you can stop and behold it long enough, if you can stop and see it long enough, we would actually see like, there's so much to take in here. There's a whole other world on the other side of these frames and I actually need to stop and look and imagine and and reimagine and behold what I'm being told to look at. So we're calling our series Reframing Reality that we might have our reality reframed to understand that our reality and our Jesus is much bigger than the reality and the Jesus we normally see. So we're gonna try to reframe reality each week and one of the ways that we're gonna try to stop and have it reframed in a healthy, humble way is we're actually, I've never done this in my history at preaching at Midtown, we're going to spend, each sermon in the series is gonna get two weeks. It's gonna have at least a part one and a part two. Some weeks might actually have a part three. But we're actually gonna try to pause and stop. Like you don't wanna zoom past the Mona Lisa, right? And take a selfie, which is ironic. Like that you would like waste your time and then just go, I'm on to the next thing. So we're actually trying to stop and behold. So we're gonna spend two weeks on each little stop that we make. So this week, and I worked really hard on this, pastors need wins, okay? We win often by creative alliterations, okay? And so here's, here's how every week is gonna start with the letter P, okay? Don't ask me why, but that's the, that's the alliteration I w- that was revealed to me. But we're gonna, we're gonna spend two weeks on each section. So this week is the perspective of Jesus, part one. The perspective of Jesus, part one. I actually read this week about There's an entire market, kind of an underground market, but an entire market and an entire art form around the framing of famous pieces of art. Like people spend inordinate amounts of money, not just on art pieces, but on the frames that go with those pieces. Because what a good frame was meant to do, is meant to do, it's sometimes that the frame is almost as important as the piece itself because what the frame can do without you even realizing it is it it can enhance the painting that it is framing and it can show you things and draw your attention to things about the painting that you never would have noticed. And so that is why we're calling it this. We are trying to reframe reality. Actually, we're trying to let Revelation reframe reality for us that we would stop and have it be reframed for us, that it might enhance and bring out the beauty and the mystery of Jesus more so than we currently see him now. So let's begin. Long intro, actually all of today is an intro. Sorry, I'm not sorry. But here's, the, here's where we begin our time in Revelation. Revelation chapter one, starting in verse four. We're gonna read just seven verses of Revelation 1 and then we're gonna skip ahead to Revelation chapter 11 as kind of a summary statement from the book. So Revelation chapter one, starting in verse four. We're not even starting in verse one because I'm reframing reality for you. But uh, this is verse four through 11. It says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. 
to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Verse nine, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And then skipping way ahead, this is one of several kind of helpful summary statements of what the whole book is about. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our God and our Christ. Okay, it's the word of the Lord. So as we begin, here's the first thing we have to notice in these opening verses about this book's beginning and how the book presents itself that will help guide us as we walk through it. This reality that we're gonna talk about is lost on many that have donned the doors of this book and they're not, they're not bad people, they're just wrong, <laughs> is that what's lost on people is what is very evident from John in these opening words is that this book is a letter. So it's an epistle, that's the New Testament language. It's a letter written by a real person in the ancient world named John, written to real people at real churches in a historical context. It's a very common form of communication in the first century, very common in the New Testament. The letter to the Galatians, the letter to the Ephesians, the letter to the church at Corinth, known as 1 Corinthians. Like letters were written, John himself wrote letters earlier in the New Testament. Peter wrote letters. Writing letters was a very common way of long distance communication and it is the way that the apostles communicated with the churches that they had planted throughout the Mediterranean and the known world. So John, a pastor, writes a letter to actual churches. Look with me again at verse four and then verses nine through 11. Verse four, John, he's identifying himself to the seven churches that are in Asia. And then skip down to verse nine. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. This book is a letter written by John, a church planter and an apostle to seven actual churches in Asia. Here's what this means. It was written to a specific group of people who were going through a specific real thing in their real lives. And John thought in order to encourage them and give them what they needed, I need to write them a letter that will mean something to them. Which means this, this letter has a context. It has a historical context that it was written into. Historical facts surrounding it, historical realities of the life that John was living in, his churches were living. And this letter was meant to engage them in their reality. 
what they were actually going through. It spoke to them. It applied to them. John knew that the churches he had planted needed something with all that they were facing, so he wrote them a letter. Please don't miss this, how massively important this is for us, because it helps us understand this book, that this letter was a real letter written to real people in a real time in history with real things going on, which means this. Guess what this book is not? It's not a code to crack. It's not a code to decodify. It's not a code book with secret numbers so that people who live in their mom's basement can go on a QAnon posting board and write about numerology and chronological predictions of the future. John didn't write this book so that churches 2,000 years later could figure out if the next president's gonna be the Antichrist. It's not why I did it. (laughs) Told you you could leave. (laughs) Like that's not what he wrote the book for. Because they didn't receive this letter and then go, man, thanks, John. This doesn't help me, but I bet in 2023, some church in Nashville is finally going to break the code and they'll know if they're in the end times or not. That's not what letters were written for. That's not why he wrote the book. Sorry if you live in your mom's basement. <laughs> I, like, I, I can't say this passionately enough. There's been really good people who've been really wrong about trying to interpret this book for the church today and they do it like it's some code to crack, like it's gonna give us dates and predictions of the future and are we in the end times yet and what's the sign of the beast and what's 666 mean? It's not the point. That's not how they were reading it. No, the people, the real people in the real churches thought to themselves and history proves this, that this vision that John gives them from the island of Patmos to their churches, gave them something that they needed for their real actual lives in their actual context. And here's how we know that it worked. Here's how we know that the letter landed and that what vision John revealed to them served its purpose is that we're still reading the letter today, which means those churches survived. Those churches lasted and they held on to this letter and then they passed it down. And so we still have this letter from the churches that received the letter because the letter actually meant something to them. They didn't get John's letter and go, well, that doesn't help us. No, they hung on every word of this letter and it wasn't meant to show them predictions and times and dates and numbers and codes and numerology and the 15th letter of the 15th chapter is trying to say, like, that's, it's not national treasure, okay? Like, it's not what the book is because it's not how they read it. And it's not, it wasn't written so that people thousands of years later could finally crack it. No, it was written to people in history. Now I'll stop yelling at you, okay? Here is, here is the history that they were living in. Here is the historical context that they were actually living in. Here's what was going on. The emperor, the Roman emperor at the time was a man named Domitian. He died in the year AD 96, Some would say, some even secular historians would say that Domitian was a profoundly insecure man who lived in constant fear of being overthrown from a revolt. And so part of the way that he tried to compensate for his insecurity was that Domitian demanded that all Roman subjects not only acknowledge him as Caesar, but worship him as Lord and God. Domine et Deus. Dominion is God. In the ruins of Ephesus, modern day Turkey, you can actually go to the remains of a temple of Domitian. 
He was an emperor, a, a, a Caesar, who had a temple where people had to come worship him. They were forced to. And this was the place, like in modern-day Turkey, in Ephesus, where people were required to come to the temple, take a pinch of incense, throw it on the altar, pay homage to Caesar, and then acknowledge him with their lips as God. They would have to say the words out loud. Every Roman subject would have to come before the priest and say this, Caesar Curios, which means Caesar is Lord. Now, if you're a Roman citizen, if you're a Roman subject, you're already a polytheist, already a whole plethora of gods to to choose from, to worship, to sacrifice to. You're a pluralist. doesn't really matter what I believe. There's lots of options to choose from. And so adding to the buffet of gods for any Roman subject, okay, if Caesar needs me to worship him and say that he's God, that's fine. I have no convictions otherwise. I'm fine to do that instead of losing my head. So, or to have him take my house from me or to kill my family. And so I don't have any problem going to the temple and saying Caesar is Lord and confessing it with my mouth. But not for John. The apostle John, who history would say went into Asia and Asia, Asia Minor post the resurrection and ascension to plant churches. He could not abide by the edict. I cannot go and confess that Caesar is Lord because Jesus is Lord. I can't do that. So John is banished to the Mediterranean island of Patmos because apparently that's a punishment. <laughs> Being sent to a Greek isle uh, is, was punishment and solitude. Apparently it was bad. Okay, I don't, I don't think John was living it all alone on Patmos. Sounds miserable. Love to try it for myself. But while, while he's there, while he's on Patmos, you can imagine this pastor, this poet, this church planner, John, who actually loved the churches that he planted, knowing that if they're sending me to Patmos as punishment, what are they doing to my churches? He actually acknowledges it in verse nine. If you go back, he actually says, I, John, your brother, he's telling them, and they know this, why he's on Patmos. I, John, your brother, and partner in tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of, like, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I testified that I believe in Jesus and they sent me here. So John, the pastor, cares about his people and he knows they're struggling. He knows they're not sure what's going on. He knows they're suffering. So you can imagine he's looking out across the Aegean Sea and he's imagining these churches and he knows they're struggling. They're being murdered. They're having their businesses taken. They're having their homes taken. They're being scattered. They're being persecuted. He knows they're discouraged and afraid. He knows they're going and asking things like this. Yeah, John, um, you asked us to believe in this resurrected rabbi named Jesus, and we believed you, uh, and now we're being punished for it. And now um, everybody hates us, and now no one wants to buy my goods, and now you've been sent away. And so you know this pastor on the island of Patmos is going, those churches are struggling They don't have their church planter. They don't have their leader that they would come to that loves them. And so John's saying, what can I give them that will encourage them? What can I give them that will help them? What can I give them that will will not only give them strength and encouragement, but that will change them? And that is where John, the pastor and poet, is given a vision. Now, we'll talk about the vision aspect of this letter next week, the apocalypse. But the vision was meant to be received by people who were in an actual context. And so the vision is not random. 
The vision is not an acid trip. The vision was given to actual people in an actual historical context who are actually facing really hard things. It's meant to serve them. It's meant to show them. It's meant to give them. It's meant to cause them to behold something new. So what did the churches need? They needed to see Jesus. They needed to see what Jesus was like right then. What is Jesus actually, where is he? I know that we've been told he's been ascended, but what is, he, what is Jesus seeing? And how does Jesus see all this? What is Jesus' perspective of our world? In other words, with all they were facing, the churches in Asia Minor needed hope. The letter of Revelation was meant to bring hope to early churches. They had needs, they had fears, they had doubts, they had troubles. And Revelation was written into that historical context to give the reader and the beholder hope for their present tense lives. Maybe we need the same thing. Because maybe we're asking the same questions. Is this all worth it? Is, is Jesus, are you even real? How's all this gonna work out? And here's what I know, and here's what history would tell us, is that John writes to these seven specific churches in Asia. However, there were more than seven churches that he had planted. He had planted at least 10 to 12 by this point. And so the fact that John only chose seven of them, he's beginning to show you in the intro some of his poetic mastery. He could have addressed the, the letter to all 10 or 12 churches that he had already planted by that point, but he picked seven. And he writes specific things to some of them. We'll look at that in a couple weeks. But here's what it's trying to show you is that biblically, the number seven always means completeness, wholeness, lacking nothing, not leaving anything out. And so John is doing like three things at the same time. Yes, he's writing into a specific context, but he also, as an apostle and given a vision by Jesus himself, he's writing to these seven churches, but instead of writing to all 10, here's what he's saying. I want anyone who reads this letter to know that the church, that church for all time needs this letter. To write to seven churches means he's not just writing to seven specific churches, he's writing to the church, the complete church. In other words, Revelation was written to them, but it was also written for us. It's written for all churches for all time. The same hope that they needed is the same hope that we need. So the Jesus that they needed to see differently, the reality that they needed to be reframed is the same reality and the same Jesus that we need to have reframed. We need to see things differently which is where the book begins, helping us see things differently. We're invited at the very beginning into the perspective of Jesus. What does Jesus see? When Jesus looks at our history, when Jesus looks at our present tense, when he looks at our future and the future of every dimension, what does he see? How does Jesus view things? Well, John and Jesus start with the end in mind. There's an intro week, there's an intro passage, but the book starts with a doxology, which is odd. Doxology, we sing a doxology at the end of every service. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. We sing the doxology. John starts with a doxology. He starts his book with a doxology. What's a doxology? It literally means a word of glory. And here's what doxology practically means. It just means how people would end writings or books of the Bible or Psalms with a word of glory. They would end with the final word. It's a summary statement of sorts. It's a, it's a culmination statement of sorts. And we normally sing it. And it's meant to say, hey, this is what all this is about. 
This is what all this has been for. This is where all this is headed. This is our guiding, summary, concluding statement. That's what doxologies are about. A word of glory to close things out. But the truth is, we don't just sing doxologies at church. So maybe that's the only time you sing them out loud. We also live out a doxology. All of us do. Everyone has a doxology. Everyone has a guiding word of glory that is guiding you into believing what is all this about and where is all this headed and what is all this for? Everyone has a doxology, a word of glory about their life. Everyone has their conclusions about this day in your life. Everyone has their conclusions about this season of life. Everyone has a doxology, a word of glory, a concluding statement about what this life is all about and what it's for. So what doxology, what word of glory, what summary statement do you think these churches were listening to and singing to themselves? What was their summary statement about life? Yeah, I don't know, John. Not sure if it's worth it. I, I, you met this Jesus guy who you tell us about, but I've never met him. I've never seen him. What, what, what is he doing? What's, what's all this for? Where's all this headed? And now I might lose my family and I might lose my job and I might lose my kids and no no one in my city is going to like me. And now I'm a threat to the Roman emperor. Yeah, John, I don't know. What doxology are we singing? What kind of fears and doubts and questions are we singing by the way that we're concluding? And what kind of glory words are we saying, this is what all this is for? Have you already decided how things in your life are going to work out? Have you already asked the question, is this even worth it? Why would I even gather every Sunday? Why would I be in a small group? Why would I join myself to a local church and go on the journey of following this Jesus, this King Jesus? Is it even real? Does it even matter? So what doxology in in John's mind and in Jesus' mind do you think he wanted them to be singing? He knew the questions they were asking. He knew the things they were facing. What vision of Jesus, what word of glory, what reframed reality, what perspective of Jesus did the people in the churches in Asia need to see and need to behold, and what do we need to see and behold? John begins with his doxology. This is verses 5b, second half of verse 5 through 8. This is his doxology. Start here, he's saying. To him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom and priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the alpha and the omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the almighty. So the story goes that a group of seminary students, after a long, very rigorous day of studying theology, uh, would sneak into a local high school gym. They'd befriended a janitor there, and he would let them in after hours to come play pickup basketball. I would have dominated them if I'd been in that game. But they, they sneak in weekly to play basketball. And after a while, they're throwing their books and their Bibles on the stands and the bleachers, and the janitor that lets them in sometimes watches them play Sometimes he grabs some of their books and sometimes he grabs their Bibles to start flipping through. After a while, the students notice that this janitor is grabbing their Bibles and reading through them. And so after several weeks of noticing this, they come to him and say, hey, what are you reading? And he says, I'm reading Revelation. And the students, knowing that their professors of New Testament theology had told them, hey, no one really understands Revelation. 
decide to pick on the janitor and say, oh yeah, you're reading Revelation. Well, do you understand it? And the janitor said, yeah. To which they said, oh, really? Well then, please enlighten us. To which the janitor replied, it seems pretty simple to me. Jesus wins. And what we'll find as we journey through Revelation, as we have our reality reframed by this book, is not simply that Jesus wins, but that Jesus has already won. The book starts you with a doxology, a word of glory, so that you can know that the ultimate reality of all things in the world and in your life is that he will win, and better said, he has already won. That's Jesus' perspective. That's what he sees right now. And Revelation is a revealing to the reader and to the listener and to the beholder of what Jesus' perspective is currently. He's already won. This is why we read Revelation eleven fifteen. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our God and of our Christ. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our God and our Christ. It's a summary statement. It's one of a few summary statements in the book. But even the way, grammar students, this sentence is written is showing you what the whole book is trying to show you. The kingdom of the world has become, as in from Jesus' perspective, it's already happened. That's what Jesus sees that's what he's showing John. The world as we know it, the kingdom of this world, as you know it and as you see it, one day from our perspective will be fully enthralled by the kingdom of God and all will be bliss. But from his perspective, it's already happened. He has already won. The song we sung right before the sermon, Behold, it's a new song. We'll sing it many times, I'm sure, in this series. You find verse three of that song, Olivia. We will sing this one day and it will all be true. The lost return, the voiceless heard, the mourner now rejoicing. The mountains shake, the world awake, creation all composing, the sad untrue, the earth renewed, the song has found its singer, the darkness light, the dead alive. That's what John wants you to see. That's Jesus' perspective. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God and of our Christ. Jesus wins. The kingdom of God wins. He has already won. Not winning like you win an argument or win an election and like you get all the, like it's all about just that person's good. No, for Jesus to win, it is about his, his glory but it's for our good. It means that Jesus and his kingdom wins, means that his kingdom reigns in this world and all of the world of famine will one day feast. Because the kingdom of Jesus wins, that's what he came to bring, that's what he came to set up, that's what he came to inaugurate, and Jesus sees the end. It is going to happen for us because it's already happened from his perspective. The end has already been settled. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God and of our Christ. So, as we begin this journey through Revelation, that's the doxology we have to sing. It's actually what the whole book's about. Now, there's lots of masterpieces to see throughout the Louvre, throughout Revelation, that we want to stop and behold, and we want to see what he sees, and we want to see what this is all about, and we want to see what Revelation is trying to get us to see 
and awaken our imaginations and redeem our imaginations, but we have to keep coming back to his perspective. That's what the churches in Asia needed to see in the first century. That's what the church in Nashville needs to see now. One more time, verses four through eight. John to the seven churches that are in Asia and Nashville. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom and priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Amen. Let's pray. King Jesus, we need to see from your perspective. Would you reveal to us with an awakened imagination what you revealed to John thousands of years ago? May we see from your seat, may we see what you see. And that really with all of its mystery and all of its confusion, Revelation is trying to tell us really one simple thing. You win because you've already won. So may that be what guides us as we interpret it. May that be what guides us as we experience it this semester. That we will be a people who need to see you and our reality differently And Revelation can do that by colliding us with the beauty of it, colliding us even with the mystery of it, all that we don't understand. Would it be an experience of the beauty of the resurrected King Jesus, the one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come? Let's call this in your name, Jesus. Amen.